Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Um, you know what? I, I think it's appropriate before I start that I, uh, I'm well aware that the 49ers lost, so you don't have to approach me, you don't have to text me, you don't have to email me. Um, if it was a contest on who's the worst at sports predictions, I think I'm the champ. So I'm hanging my hat on that reality today. Hey, uh, it's my pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. If you're new with us, I see some new faces. My name is Andy, and um, I don't know, maybe once a month or so, I have the, the pleasure of bringing God's word on a Sunday morning. And I'm really excited. To, this morning, I, I finally get to kind of dip my toe into our brand new sermon series in the book of James. And I don't know if you've been around, or uh, maybe this is your first Sunday, so I'll, I'll just uh, kind of recap. James is just the most incredible book. It's this, this short book as far as how many verses and chapters... But it's just packed with meaning. And it's this book that, as our, our sermon series is called Practical Wisdom, it's practical. Practical. I, I think of it as, if you're looking for fruit, it's low-hanging. You can just grab it. You can understand it. You can put it into practice. And I'm so excited because it's, it's just been doing wonders in my own life as I read it. And I realize, you know what? God is working on me. God is working on us. God is never through with us. And as we read these things, we become alive in our faith, that God is, is leading us in the way that a follower of Jesus should walk and act in the world. Are you with me? And so I don't have a fancy introduction this morning. I just want to give you a little context, and then we're going to jump right into chapter two. The last couple of weeks, we've been kind of going through chapter one. And at the end of chapter one, James makes this statement that many of you know and many of you have memorized. It is that we are not to just be hearers of the word, we are to be doers of the word. How many of you love that phrase? How many of you realize that even a young child can understand what that means? It simply means that a follower of Jesus is not someone who just fills up their, their kind of mental gas tank. It's not just a, a research project. You go to the library, you read all the right books, you got the right theology, and therefore you are a Christian. James would say all those things are fantastic. We should have instruction. We should have teaching. But a follower of Jesus is known by their love, and love is an action word. And so I think chapter 2 is really just answering the, the next logical question. If we're to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word... The logical question for me is, how do you do that? How many of you want to know how to do that? I want to know how to do that. And so chapter uh, 2 of James begins, I think, the answer of how to. Now, before we jump in, I want to uh, point out one thing. If you were writing a letter to a, a group of people who are brand new followers of Jesus, and they're just trying to figure it out, and I, I got to remind you that James is writing at a time where this, as a compiled whole, does not exist. Maybe some of the, the scrolls of the Old Testament are accessible, of course. Maybe a couple of the letters. Um, but people don't have a unified Bible where they just open it up, take it home, and read it. And so they are hungry for God's Word. They are hungry for instruction. And if they're asking the question, how do I follow Jesus tangibly in my own life? The first thing out of James' mouth is going to be very significant, isn't it? The first piece of instruction is probably the most significant thing he wants to share. And so I want to keep that in mind as we open up our Bible to James chapter 2 this morning. It says this in verse 1. The first thing James wants followers of Jesus to know is this. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I think this is what James is saying. If you're going to be a new, blossoming group of people that we're going to come to know of as a church body, the first thing that we got to know is we got to get rid of anything that could fracture our relationships and kind of jeopardize our unity. And so the first thing he chooses to point out is not, uh, here's a, a theological explanation of love or grace, or here's how we should understand the resurrection. It's this, do not show partiality in your church body. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Verse 2 goes on. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, hey, you sit here in the good place, well, you say to the poor man, you, uh, you could stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Now, we need to set aside that in our culture, if a man came in wearing a ton of golden rings, you might think he's like a, a godfather mafia boss. That's not what we're talking about. So let's talk uh, first century culture a little bit. If you've been around, this is like, uh, this is where my, my heart gets palpitating, and I love this stuff. So let's talk some history. Let's talk some culture. The ancient world that we're talking about is, and you're going to say, what does this have to do with the Bible? I promise I'm going to tie all these things together. The ancient world is an agricultural world. Nod your head if you understand that. Okay, so most of you. And the agricultural world is 100% dependent on a few things. It's dependent on rain. It's dependent on good sunny days for harvest. And it's dependent on enough labor that can get all the harvest into the barn and stored properly. Does that make sense to everyone? And so here's what, what I want you to know about the agricultural world. Is that resources are very finite. Year to year, depending on how much of the harvest comes in, there is only so much to go around. Do you see that? And the reason this matters is because this world is also a culture that is shaped by honor and shame. The entire culture is kind of laid on this foundation of some people inherently by where they were born, what family they belong to, they are people of great honor and then there are some people, based on, on just the luck of the draw, where they were born into, they are people of low class and shame. Does that make sense? In a finite world, James is going to tell us in a second, something everybody in the first century knows, that those with honor have the ability and the resources to extract all the value, and the way that they do that is they suppress and they oppress the poor and the needy. Now, here's the problem, is that this is not a problem to them. In the ancient world, it would have been mind-blowing to say that this honor and shame culture is wrong. If somebody walked into church and one of them had gold rings, which, by the way, is like the status symbol for you are wealthy, you are well-to-do, you have high honor, it would have been mind-blowing to say that you wouldn't offer up the best seat in the house to that person. It would have even been mind-blowing to the poor and shabby clothed person to walk in the door and say, hey, you get to sit in the seat of honor. Even they would have a problem with that. And so what James is doing is he's writing to a group of people who are forming a brand new church community, and he's saying, look, you have been shaped by the world. Your understanding comes from the culture you were raised in. And guess what? That has no place here. It has no place place here. Now I want to point out a couple examples if you're having a hard time kind of figuring out what the heck we're talking about. Uh, one of the ways that honor and shame was distributed in the ancient world was by association, association about who you invited to your home. If you invited someone to your home, what you're saying to them is that I want to share my honor status with you. And so it was very, very important in the ancient world that you don't associate yourself intimately with people who would bring your level of honor down. So here's a story for you. Jesus, he's walking through the countryside, and he sees a short man in a tree. You remember this story? His name is Zacchaeus. And what does he say to Zacchaeus? Come on down. I want to. I'm inviting myself over. In our world, we teach our kids, don't invite yourself over. It's really rude, right? So Jesus does the most rude five-year-old thing that you could possibly do. He says, hey, come on down. I'm having a play date at your house. He invites himself over. He didn't even ask his parents' permission or for a ride or anything. He just invited himself over. This is, in that ancient world, this is a sign that Jesus is saying, I want to be associated with you. I want to share in your honor or shame status. And what kind of status does Zacchaeus have? Shame. And so everyone's saying, whoa, Jesus, we might want to know a little bit more about this guy before we begin to associate with people like this. So we have this reality, this reality in the ancient world where probably 80% of people are, are the working poor or the destitute. Some scholars say only about 5% of the population is wealthy and holding a great deal of honor. And as you can imagine, these, these ancient people, they thought differently than us. They want to keep their status. And so everything they do is organized in a way where they don't want to associate with the poor if they do, it's because we want to hire the labor to go harvest the fields. Our friends are well-to-do, and we're going to keep our honor. We're going to keep the honor of our family name. And everything we do is geared towards this end. And so two people come into church. 
One of them is rich. He has gold rings on his fingers. He's wearing wonderful clothing. I don't know designer brands, but Gucci is just, just came to my mind. I don't know, maybe he's wearing first century Gucci. I don't even know if that's a big deal or not, but it sounds cool. He's got gold rings on his fingers. Now this is the snapshot I want you to get before we move on. This person, maybe it's a greeter at the door, knows nothing about these people except a snapshot of what they look like. Do you see that? And so immediately they jump into this, I know who has honor and who has shame and where they belong. So I don't want to write this off and say this is not just about rich and poor, but it's not entirely about being rich or poor. It's about having honor and having shame. Are you following? And that's the problem. And James says, if you want to be a a budding church community that's going to become vibrant and full of spiritual health and spiritual fruit, partiality is the first thing that you're going to have to root out. And so I was thinking, how does this pertain to us right here, 2023? Anybody else mind blown that it's 2023? I feel like COVID was like 2019, 2023. And here we are. But what does it mean for us? How many of you would say that, uh, at least in part, you used to be guilty of looking at somebody and making some assumptions? We have some phrases for this in in our culture. We say, don't judge a book by its cover. And we say that. We know it should be true up here, but we all, in some way, shape, or form, we do it. We are guilty to some degree of looking at someone and making a snap judgment. I, I just made a list. This is not exhaustive. It's just literally I sat down and thought, how do we judge people in our culture? Who gets honor and who doesn't get honor? And this is what I came up with. Uh, wealth is celebrated in our culture, influence, social class, education level. If I walked into somebody's office and they just had degrees, like master's degree, PhD, doctorate, hanging all over their wall, I would assume something about them and I would give them a level of honor. Would you agree? Have you ever been to a conference and the speaker comes up and the speaker has like 20 minutes, but the person who introduces them takes 10 minutes saying, the next guest wrote 18 books and went to Harvard University. Have you seen that? And what they're doing is they're projecting to you why you should listen to this person because they, according to our culture, have great honor. Education level, intellectual ability, physical prowess, is they're not people who are just like, wow, you got chiseled out of marble and I did not. Beauty, celebrity, sophistication, all of these things are part of how we look at a person and judge how much honor or how much prestige or how much status we should give them. Would you agree? And I think this is at the core of what James is saying. I I did a lot of thinking about why we honor those things, and I kind of came up with this uh, this scenario in my head. I grew up in the, the 90s. I'm a product of the 90s. I was born in the 80s, if you were wondering, but I grew up in the 90s. And in the 90s, as a a young boy who was a big sports fan, there was one and only one person in the world of sports in the 90s that was the GOAT. That was Michael Jordan. Thank you for everyone who said Michael Jordan. If you don't even know anything about sports, you know Michael Jordan. In fact, uh, Forbes did a list a long time ago of uh, the most recognizable names on the planet. Do you know what number one was? Michael Jordan. He was ahead of Jesus, by the way. Yeah, I'm serious. You could look it up. What if Michael Jordan walked in right now? Uh, If I had to be honest with you, I'm not 100% on board with James. I would stumble on my words, and then I would be immediately thinking, how could I get a selfie and an autograph after this? But focus, focus, focus. Okay, what would you do? You're laughing at me. What would you do? Would there be a, a chatter in the room? Would there be a little bit of a murmur? Of a, oh my goodness, how many of you would be like, I'd stop note-taking because I don't want my pen to run out of ink, I need that autograph, right? <laughs> That's how we work. And so if you're thinking, I don't have this problem, we all have the problem to some degree or another. What James is saying is regardless of how somebody looks or who we know them to be on the outside, are you a place where people just come? Because listen to this, the New Testament says when you come to the table of communion, there is no distinction. Every person is in the same boat. And here's the boat. We are all sinners in need of God's forgiveness and redemption. And in that light, there is no ranking of people. Because here's the problem. If we're honest with ourselves, when we judge people like this, when we rank them, 
what we're really doing is saying that there's something about you that I might be able to get something out of. Maybe it's as simple as I got a selfie with Michael Jordan and so my Instagram account is going to the moon. Maybe it's I want to associate with that person because they own a big company and I really hate my job, but I'd like to work at that company instead. If we're honest with ourselves, maybe you're in a position where you want uh, some advancement or you want a promotion. You've become pretty buddy-buddy with your boss, and even if you're good friends, there's still an inkling of the power dynamics of the reason I'm giving this uh, relationship so much attention is because deep down I want something out of it. James is saying that that has no place in the body of Christians. Does that mean that it just ceases to exist? No, but it means that we have to submit these things before the Lord and allow him to shape in us a whole different way of seeing. Luckily, the scripture goes on, and I think James answers the question of how we are supposed to see who is deserving of honor. Verse 5 says this. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen uh, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I don't want to get hung up entirely in this rich and poor language. What I want you to hear is in the ancient world, rich were considered honorable because of something very important. If you saw a man with gold rings and fancy clothes, your first assumption was, God likes him more than me. That was just an assumption. So what James is saying is very countercultural. He's saying that's not true at all. You don't have to walk around feeling like, well, clearly the gods or God favors that person more because look at them. They deserve their honor. They got it for a reason, and God must have given it to them. Instead, this is what James says. God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Let me tell you a couple stories. Would that be okay? Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and he begins to accumulate quite a bit of honor. And we know that because the crowds, they swell bigger and bigger and bigger. People are recognizing him and saying, he is worth following. We want to be around this guy. Amazing things happen We want a relationship with Jesus because something good might happen to us. Our association with him. Remember what the disciples say. When you come in your glory, can I sit at your right hand? What are they saying? When you become the emperor of Jerusalem, do you think I could be vice president? They want something out of this relationship because it's human nature. And Jesus is walking through the countryside. There's this woman She's been struggling with this medical condition. We know her as the hemorrhaging woman. But in the ancient world, this this problem with bleeding is not just a small problem. Because in the Jewish world, consistent bleeding means you are perpetually unholy and unwelcome. And you don't get to be part of a synagogue. You can't be around your family. Because no matter what happens, you are always unclean and unholy. This is the epitome of shame in the ancient world. And she sneaks up behind Jesus and she touches his garment. And what happens? She's healed. And what does Jesus say to her? Daughter, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. It's not because of your association and somehow you got close to me. It's not even because you touched me. It's because of your faith. You are rich in faith. Now go, your social status has been elevated back to honorable because you have faith in me. Lepers come before Jesus. And I love what Jesus does. You know it's against the law in the ancient world to, uh, to have contact with a leper. If you touched a leper, you'd have to go through this series of days and days of ritual cleaning to get the filth of a leper off of you. You know what Jesus does? He just reaches out and touches one before he even says a word. By the way, these people, you notice that they're known by their physical ailment. They're not even known by a name. And so we just know the man with leprosy. Jesus touches him. He does the most dishonorable, unclean thing possible. And the man is healed. And what does he say? 
Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. What is Jesus doing? He's associating himself with the poor and the vulnerable, the people who have nowhere else to turn. I think intuitively we, we know something that James is saying, and here's the, the idea. In the ancient world, the poor person has no resources. They have no family honor to go back on. If times are tough and they have faith in Jesus, there's no other way out. You, you can't buy your way out. You can't go through your Rolodex of all your previous business uh, connections and call your way out. 100% all in, faith in Jesus, because there's no other option. Now, here's the problem. One of many problems. Some of you uh, love history, and so this is for you. Uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, something happened in and around Jerusalem. We know it as the, uh, the Maccabean Revolt. This is actually, by the way, where uh, Hanukkah comes from, if you're curious. It, what happened is uh, a group of Jewish people decided that their foreign captors they had to go, and so they began acting violently, and they began lashing out and saying, we are taking back the homeland for ourselves. And for a period of time, they were very successful at it. But a group of prominent Jewish people, they looked at the situation, and they said, we are winning battles, but there is no way we're going to win a war against these people. And so what they did is they decided that they would compromise that they would accept some of the legal standards of their Roman captors, and in exchange, guess what they got with their relationship? Well, these Jews are willing to play ball with us. Let's give them some wealth and some power, and behind the scenes, let's orchestrate to make sure that they are in charge of this whole area. After all, they are connected with us. And do you know who these people are? These become a select group of Pharisees, and they all end up sitting on the highest committee in the land. Remember what that is called? The Sanhedrin, exactly. These are the same people who Jesus has to come before and speak to. These are people who are sympathetic to the Roman government. And guess what they turn the temple into? They turn the temple into a place that anybody with all sorts of power that loves power does. They say, oh, it's, it's for worship and prayer, but we could also make a ton of money. And they begin to use their influence and their relationships, and they begin to shape the Jewish world this way. This is something that we like to look back on, and we like to point a finger at and say, I can't believe that they did that. I would never do that if somebody just gave me all sorts of power and money and resources with no consequence. But in reality, if we're really truthful with ourselves, there's an element of our human heart that would like a little bit more power. We'd like a little bit more position. And sometimes we, we, uh, we tell ourselves, if I had it, I, I would totally use it only for good. I wouldn't line my own pocketbook, or I wouldn't, you know, add 50 vacation days a year. But I think what James is saying is it's not true. Our associations and our relationships cannot be for personal advancement. They can't be to just boost ourselves. Because as a follower of Jesus, we are in this together, and the health and the unity of our church is primary. And James says the first thing you can't do is you can't start introducing things that come from the culture on the outside into the worship gathering that's going to fracture and break the beautiful unity that God wants to create in and through us. James says um, in this scripture, he says, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich who, uh, ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Every time I preach, I learn something really cool and new that I had no idea about. And so I was reading this week, and this is what I discovered. Two honorable people in the ancient world, they are motivated to keep that honor. They are motivated to keep that status. And so when they had a disagreement, guess what they often did? They settled it outside of any legal means. They just got together over a meal and said, let's settle our dispute. You want to know why? Because we don't want to get dragged through the mud. We don't want the optics of our face flashed on CNN or Fox News and have our, our honor go down. So let's settle this behind closed doors and go our separate ways. However, very common, this might come as a surprise to you, but there became something that we know as a frivolous lawsuit. You ever heard of that? And this is how it was used in the ancient world. Somebody with honor would feel like there is some competition or there's some pressure. 
And so they would say, what do I have at my disposal? I have money, I have resources, I have connections. I'm going to drag this person into court and I'm going to shame them. This is like the tabloid of the first century. Who's going to court? What, is, what are they disputing? And so what you would do is if somebody is challenging your authority, they're challenging your honor, you could drag them to court and use all your resources legally to shame them into submission. And this is exactly what is happening. So what James is saying are not the honorable the people with status, aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court to make sure it stays that way? And are they not the one, ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, I think we all understand this, that by association, people have honor and shame in the ancient world, and this is the most beautiful thing. Followers of Jesus, they come before an assembly, and have you ever noticed how Paul introduces himself? How does Paul introduce himself? Paul, an apostle or a servant of Jesus Christ. This is what he is saying. This is my honorable greeting to you. Here's my identity. I'm a son of the Most High. I'm a son of God. I'm a, I belong to Jesus. I've been adopted. I'm an heir to the kingdom. What James is saying, there's people who hear that and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There's no honor in that. The guy that you're associating with, he went on trial and was crucified on a cross. That's not honorable. That's shameful. And it says, so they blaspheme you for it. Blasphemy is just uh, to speak with slander or profanity against something that's holy. But here's the thing. You ever notice that throughout the New Testament, the people who flock to Jesus? Yes, there's people who probably had some wealth and some honor, but mostly none. You notice that? And what do they do? They start to associate themselves with Jesus, and they say, I had no idea that I was heir to an inheritance the kingdom prepared in advance for me. Jesus starts telling people who have nothing, hey, you're adopted into the kingdom of God. You have God's favor. His blessing is upon you. This is the first time they've ever had any dignity or worth, and they flock to him in droves. They beg for healing. They follow him so much they forget their lunch. Remember that? They're so hungry to follow Jesus, they forget to pack a PB&J for the road. They're so hungry to follow Jesus, he's like, I, I got to get some rest. He gets in a boat to go to the other side, and they're like, we don't have boats because we're too poor. Let's just run all around the whole lake to go meet him on the other side. This is how hungry people are. For the God who tells them that you are not a nobody. You don't have to claim the status that the world tells you you are. This is great news to people, and I think this is what James is saying. For people who culturally come into the church and they already have honor, they already have status, they also have to set that aside and say, I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High. And for some people, that's going to be a hang-up. I'm just going to move on to verse 8. It says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, you do murder. You have become a transgressor of the law. I think this is what James is doing. He's appealing to something called the Ten Commandments. Have you heard of it? Now, here's the, the problem with the scripture. He points out two of the commandments, and he says, um, For uh, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Who is he that he's talking about? I think James is talking about his half-brother, Jesus. Because Jesus had a teaching where he talked about these two things, which after idolatry and worshiping only the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, these are like the, the two big sins against your brothers or sisters, adultery and murder. And Jesus had some teaching about this. Do you remember what he said? He said, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say to you, if you even harbor negative or dark or, or hateful thoughts in your heart, you are guilty of murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you are guilty of 
adultery. What Jesus is doing is um, it, it's, it's a very common practice for rabbis throughout history. What he's doing is he's given an interpretation of the law. Now, if you want to take notes on this, this is very interesting stuff. For Jews, there's something called the law, which is the Torah. And in the Torah, there's a little bit of dispute, but there's somewhere around 612 or 613 commandments. But here's the problem. Even with that many commandments and that many laws, there's still all sorts of gray area of how do you actually follow this law. And so Jews created something called the oral Torah or the oral law. And what that was is it was a living document. It still exists. You can look it up. It's a commentary from all these famous wise rabbis on how do you actually follow these commandments. Let me give you an example. One of the Ten Commandments is that you should work six days, but on the seventh day you should rest. You should literally cease from working. What does it mean to cease from working? Hmm. Is baking a loaf of bread working? Is carrying some firewood from outside to inside to heat your home, is that working? You see how this becomes a conundrum, and where do you draw the line of what is work and what is not? And so all these people jumped into action, and they started creating all these laws to help people not work on the Sabbath. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Bryce, I don't think he's here, I don't see him, he went to Israel and he told me of this phenomenon, and I thought, that's ridiculous, i got to look it up. It's totally true. It's called a Sabbath elevator. Do you guys know what a Sabbath elevator is? Jews have decided that touching the button of an elevator is work, so you cannot do that on the Sabbath. But walking up the stairs is also work, so you can't walk up the stairs. So what is a Jew to do on the Sabbath? Surely you can't just build a, a one-story world, right? So they came up with this genius idea. It's called a Sabbath elevator. Every Sabbath, it is programmed. It, the door is open. You get in. No buttons touched. It goes up one floor, pauses, doors open, people in and out, doors closed, next one. You don't have to touch anything. Every single floor. Can you imagine in some of these places that are 50, 60 stories high? I'm just trying to get to the 58th floor. You thought you were running late. So this is how the oral law comes. And Jesus provides oral law, too. He literally says, you've heard, don't murder, but I want to tell you, even harboring hatred in your heart is murder. I, I think what Jesus is trying to do, this is what the Apostle Paul says, he's trying to point out that it's going to be impossible for you to follow the full law. You're just not going to do it on your own. You have to depend on the grace and the forgiveness of God. And James points this out. Because for Jews to disobey one commandment is to disobey the whole thing because they understood the law to be one unified whole, not 613 commands. So James says this, here's my oral commentary on the law. Here's my interpretation. If you show, impar if you show partiality, favoritism, based on some honor code that the world handed you, in your congregation, you are guilty of sin. And let me remind you, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of them all. That's what James says. Then he says, he's chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong section. Okay, I'm back on, on track. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Impartiality. You are committing sin and you are convicted of the law as a transgressor. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So that's what James is saying. He's saying that you're familiar with this style of teaching where it's expounded upon and then it's handed to you as an expectation that you follow this. And he says, the very first thing I want you to know, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, this is awesome, I want to be a doer of the word. I want God to get a hold of my heart and lead me. I want to, my actions to just spew out the love of God. How do I do it? The first thing he says is, listen, you got to get rid of the way that the world ranks people and sees people as valuable or not valuable, honorable or shameful. That has no business in your congregations. That's the first thing he says. That loving some people more and showing favoritism is not compatible with what God expects of a follower of Jesus. Now, I want to um, just make a point here because I think this is important. 
James is not saying that when you come into church, you're not allowed to have a friend that you care about a little bit more than someone else. He's not saying that you can't have an intimate relationship where people know your prayer life and they know the ins and the outs of your life, and some people you've decided they don't have that privilege. That, I think, is just called healthy boundaries. Have you heard of those? I'm working on it. God's been working on that in my life for a decade. What he's saying is that we should not assume that somebody has honor or status based on how they look or some basic rudimentary things we know about them. Maybe somebody walks in and you're like, oh, what do you do for work? Oh, I'm a plumber. Oh. And you begin to assume certain things. James says, can't happen. That doesn't happen in your midst. We're going to wrap up with uh, a couple takeaways, but I want to move on to verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are, uh, are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what James is talking about. He's saying if you want to be judged under the old law, where all those commandments and all those oral law expectations of all the things you want to do, if you want to be held accountable to that and you want to be judged under that, keep showing favoritism. Keep showing partiality. Have a blast, but at the end of time, every person will be called to account. And if that's the judgment, if that's the stick that you want to be measured by, then you can continue. But he says, so act by those who will be judged under the law of liberty. It's the same word for freedom. How many of you want to be judged under the law of freedom? The freedom to say, oh, God, my heart is so convicted by what you're saying in your word. I submit myself to you. I recognize that I fall short. And when I do, I'm going to ask for forgiveness because I recognize it's wrong. James is saying, you will be judged under the law of liberty. It won't be held against you. What will be held against you is that you asked for forgiveness. And so what will be on your account will be nothing by the blood of Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I read a commentary this week, and it said, Mercy is an outward sign that your heart is being shaped in the direction that Jesus desires it to be. And so this is where James leaves us the first thing in what it means to be more than just a hearer, but a doer. And I want to take a a moment as we wrap up this morning, and I want to tell you something um, just transparent and authentic from my heart. You know, sometimes you read through the scripture and you are deeply convicted and other times you think, you know what, God has brought me a long way because what I'm reading about makes sense in my own life. Do you have that experience? I was asked to bring you the first chunk of chapter 2 this week and as I read it over and over and I, I, I read what James maybe is correcting in this first century congregation, this is what I came to. Bridge Community Church is a phenomenal place that very little partiality I have ever seen here. Is anybody bold enough just to raise your hand and say, I agree? I agree. Yeah. Literally, you could say I agree. I don't think until I came here I had ever seen this so alive in Christian community. And I'm not picking certain people out. I, I hope that you're not hearing that. I have seen people come in who are so high as a kite on drugs that, like, I don't even think they know where they are. And do you know what happens to those people? They are greeted with dignity at the door. They are given a warm cup of coffee. They are given a, a listening ear if they want to talk. I know somebody who has been walking around and I think, a hallucinogenic stupor for years a homeless guy that used to come to this church every single Sunday. And you know what happened? Most of you know his name. Many of you ask me, hey, I know that sometimes you drive through the park. Have you seen this gentleman? I've been praying for him. You consider him one of you. And I think this is what James is getting at, and this is what the New Testament teaches. We should be the group of people who recognize and we honor based on something totally different than the world. And what do we honor? I think the New Testament says it this way. We honor the saints. We honor those who are rich in faith, and they come from all backgrounds. They come from 
all uh, socioeconomic statuses, they come from all careers, they come from all ethnicities, they come from all ages and stages of life, and we should be a place that highlights, that props up and says the people that we honor, it doesn't matter what their paycheck is or what their position is at work, those things are irrelevant. Because what we honor in our body is those who follow Jesus with a reckless abandon, that their faith is so strong that it's contagious. Would you agree? And so I was thinking, and I, I, I hate to single people out because that's not my heart, and it's not my heart to leave others out. But I was preparing for this message, and I was thinking, who are some of those people to me? One of the ways I prepared for this sermon this morning is I was thinking of who deserves honor, and I, I want to just say it openly. I watched a podcast with Greg Lees. I watched that podcast, and I thought, somebody who has gone through a life of ups and downs that walks around with the vibrancy and the love of Jesus is somebody that we highlight at this church. I, I thought about you, Phyllis. I couldn't watch all of them because it would be like 40 hours of watching, but I started watching snippets, and I, I I just thought, these are people that we know their names. We know who they are. We rest on them, not, not because they're some type of superhero, but because in Christ they've handed themselves over to Jesus, and God has handed themselves back and said, here you are. You're being made holy. You're being made in the image of Christ. And those are people that, I don't know about you, but when I'm in need, when I need wisdom, those are the people I go to. And you, know, you all know who they are. Some of you don't. And so this is how I want to end this morning. It's only 11.15. I want to pray, and I want to just encourage you. I don't know what your plans are. I just want to encourage you to hang out and socialize and fellowship. I think if you're new with us or maybe you've been around a while, there are people in here that you may not know, and you might be surprised by their sainthood. Not because that they're amazing people in their own right, but because they're people who have realized that they have shortcomings, they've given themselves over to Jesus, and Jesus has made faith blossom and explode out of them. And I think we would all benefit from just hanging out with each other. And so I want to encourage you not to rush off if you don't have to. I want to pray and I want to just say amen and say, hey, take time. Find somebody you've never met. Get to know them. Ask them what their story is. And let's do that together. Does that sound good? Why don't we stand together as we pray and we dismiss this morning? God, thank you that all these things are not wishful thinking. These are not just ten good ideas to live a great life now. That when we submit ourselves to you, when we take your word seriously, when we pray, when we don't give up meeting together, when we worship with our whole heart, you actually shape us, you actually change us. We experience the, the renewing of our mind. We experience the, the putting back together of broken hearts. And so, God, we just turn our attention to you simply, and we just say, God, thank you for the example that just exists in this room. People who are rich in faith, thank you that people admire and lift up and honor those who are rich in faith. Would that be a, an example for us? So, God, we love you. We ask that we would uh, grow deep roots all the way down to the, the depths of the living water that you give to us. Would we drink and not grow thirsty? We love you. We recognize the world is warping minds and hearts and shaping us to think and do things that are not of you. And so we submit those things to you. We ask that you would be who you are. You would gently nudge us, that you would point out the ways that, that we need to submit ourselves to ask for forgiveness to repent. But God, we also celebrate the ways that you have done that so well here in this church body. And so we give you thanks. We give you glory for that. We ask that you would go before each one. Weeks that include celebrations. Weeks that include difficult meetings, doctor's appointments, good news, bad news, family drama. All of those things, we give them all to you. We ask that you would whisper in their inner ear in their moments of need. You would remind them as we sang this morning, that you are with us. You are with us. You are with us. 
And we give you praise and glory for that this morning. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.